Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. This is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And in today's very special episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail, the mailbot Carney will be played by special guest star John Saxon. Everybody give a round of applause. Okay, Rob, are you ready if I jump right into this first message about the Tide of Gold? Let's do it. Okay, this comes from Joseph. He writes, I just recently listened to the episode from June 25th, 2021, about harvesting gold from the ocean. I wanted to share that I received my master's degree in chemistry from San Francisco State University for studying a class of proteins known as, uh, and I think this would be phytochelatins, uh, if it'd be pronounced kind of like the word chelation, which is about uh, bonding to metals, and that's also what these things do, I believe. So I think it's phytochelatins, or PCs. PCs are a family of sulfur-rich peptides which are induced in plants, yeast, and fungi exposed to heavy metals, and are thought to detoxify metals by forming PC metal complexes. I specifically studied PC cadmium complexes isolated from Jimson weed, native to California. It was the first study to report the size and nature of native PC cadmium complexes from plant tissue samples. Maybe I should start trying to round up investors for my new company to get more gold out of the soil. It might just work. Uh, check out the paper if you're interested, and then Joseph uh, links to uh, the paper on which he's one of the co-authors, published in the Journal of Mass Spectrometry in the year 1999. And Joseph says, thanks so much for the podcast. I'm now subscribed on Spotify. Joseph. Excellent. Well, thank you, Joseph. Uh, we appreciate the subscription, uh, but more to the point, we appreciate the uh, the, the, the expert feedback here on uh, on this past episode. Yeah, and always happy to give people ideas for hoaxes, scams, and, and scandals. <laughs> All right. Here we have another one. We keep getting email regarding our episodes on queuing, on standing in line, and we love it because we knew this would be something that everybody would have some sort of insight on, personal, cultural, uh, historic, etc. Hi, Joe and Robert. Joe's comments about the zipper merge when lanes are closed reminds me of a similar phenomenon that I experienced in Boston. It's something that outsiders generally perceive as rude and crazy, but I think it makes perfect sense, and it is, to use some new vocabulary, almost a Pareto improvement. In Boston, where the roads are narrow, there are rarely left-turn lanes at traffic lights. It is very common for a left-turner waiting at a red light to jump the light, making their left turn as soon as the light turns green, essentially cutting off the oncoming driver who is going straight through. In general, the driver in the oncoming lane will at least be prepared for this maneuver and often will even wave the left turner ahead to make sure all involved parties are on the same page. This all results in an imperceptible loss of time for all cars in the oncoming direction, but saves all of the cars behind the left turner from having to wait for the entire light cycle in order to drive straight through the intersection. I have never seen this done outside of Boston, but to me it makes perfect sense and seems like a win for everyone one involved. Uh, John, I think this does take place outside of Boston. I believe this is probably something that's just common in very busy urban streets that are tight with a lot of traffic on them and is less common in you know places where traffic is moving at a more leisurely pace or there's mo- more room for everybody to get around. 
Yeah, I mean, here here in Atlanta, we do have some some hellish left turns yeah. and some and some strange. I, I I know other cities have these as well, obviously, but ooh, reversible turn lanes. Um, oh no, that that is the whoever <laughs> came up with that idea. I'm sure it seemed like a good idea at the time, but or I, I guess it's reversible lanes rather. That, oh yeah, well, not guess, turn lanes. Sorry, yeah, the reversible. Yeah. So the, there's like one major road at least here in town that uh, for a long stretch has three lanes and the middle lane changes directions depending on what time of day it is. Or I don't know if it does that anymore. It, used it to. does. It totally does. Oh, it still okay. does. And the, the, the super infuriating and dangerous part of it is that, yes, yeah, some people know this. Some people are not uh, aware of it or have forgotten about it. And some people will treat that middle lane as a turn lane, regardless of what time of day it is and who is actually supposed to be in that lane. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, it, 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 gets, it gets insane. Uh, anyway, John continues, I realize this is a little late, but I've spent the last two weeks on an unplanned visit to my hometown of Madison, uh, Wisconsin, to help make arrangements for my mom, who had a stroke two weeks ago. She's doing well in rehab, but I will be up here uh, right until my teaching year starts to get her settled into a new living arrangement. Having you guys in my ear has made the driving, packing, and even the waiting much easier. So thanks for being there. Yours, John. Oh, well, that, that's so nice to hear, John, and I uh, hope for the best for your mom. Absolutely. Okay, this next message is from Gabe. Gabe says, Dear Robert and Joe, hello there. I've been listening to Stuff to Blow Your Mind off and on for a few years now and always come back to you guys for delightful science stuff. I was listening to the recent episodes on queuing and I thought of a potentially interesting example of queuing that I've experienced. I live in Washington State, where we rely on ferry boats to get to certain islands or across bodies of water. These ferries are often either the only route or the quickest route. To get on the ferries, you often have to wait in lines of cars, sometimes for hours, and line cutting or attempted line cutting certainly happens. It is advertised and treated as a real significant threat. Signs are put up along the queuing route with numbers to call the uh, with numbers to call to report quote interlopers, and local in queue protest to these interjections is often severe, characterized by horn honks and sometimes shouting. This example struck me as interesting because it seems to hybridize the ideas of waiting in traffic as a queue and waiting in lines for a more quantifiable commodity, e.g. a bagel sandwich. I was curious what psychology was at play here that, at least anecdotally, people waiting in, waiting in the car and ferry lines seem more eager to defend the line than queues on foot. Anyway, thanks very much for your excellent content, and I look forward to future episodes. Gabe. Well, that's interesting. I mean, it, it instantly makes me think back to research we covered in our um, uh, our episode on vehicular cognition about how we perceive ourselves and how we perceive others when uh, we're in a driving environment, and how mm. some of these uh, some some of the cons- the constraints that might be there otherwise are washed away when we're in a vehicle. It, the, there's another distinction I wonder about, which is um, I wonder if we tend to naturally behave differently when we're waiting for something like waiting for a product or service, say waiting in line at a drive through at a bank or at a restaurant uh, versus when we are in a transition period, meaning we're waiting to get somewhere, not to, you know, not for the product or service, but we're just trying to, in our minds, sort of like escape wherever we are now and get, you know, get back home. I think often, you know, when people would be really frustrated or try to get somewhere on time, get to work on time. 
I wonder if we actually have less tolerance for waiting in these sort of transitioning traveling states because the waiting for a ferry, you're still, it's kind of combining the two. It's like waiting in a drive through, but it's also like waiting in traffic as the, as Gabe says here. Hmm. I wonder too, if, if there's a, a hint of this to it as well. So if we're, if we're waiting in line with other people to get that bagel sandwich, uh, we know on some level we all have a shared objective here. We all want that sweet bagel sandwich. You know, we that's that's why we're here. Maybe we feel that some of us deserve it more than others, but but we all have the same goal. Whereas if it's just people driving somewhere, or you know, you can I guess you could lean into an interpretation where hey, we're just all trying to get home. Uh, mm-hmm. We're all trying to get to some place where we need to be, or hey, we're all just trying to get to work in the morning, something of that nature. But it also is ambiguous enough that you could perhaps lean more into this idea of like, well, I'm just trying to get home. I don't know what this guy's trying to do. He's maybe he's, he's just, he just wants to go home and watch a football game or something. He's just in a hurry for something that doesn't matter as much as my thing, which is is ultimately a very unfair um, criticism to make. I mean, they, maybe they have to go to the bathroom really bad. I don't know. I mean, not that it, you know, excuses dangerous driving or anything, but um, you know, everyone, conceivably has a reason for what they're doing. Oh, this is totally how we think. I mean, I I think I said this in one of the queuing episodes. The difference between you and everybody else on the road is that you've got somewhere you need to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And everyone else just wants to be somewhere and is impatient about getting there or too patient about getting there, (laughs) depending on how fast they're driving. All right, here's another one. This one comes to us from Alex. Hi, Joe and Robert. I've listened to your podcast for a handful of years, and sometimes I get unreasonably excited at the episode titles before having played them. Recently, Regression to the Mean and Reconsider the Bean had me cheering with my cats. (laughs) I'm not big on cinema, but still love when cinema spills into your other discussions. The joy you both find in linking ideas with media is infectious, even if I don't get the references. Thanks uh, for your hard work and love your stuff, Alex. What's the common thread with Regression to the Mean and Reconsider the Bean? They rhyme. That's what I I was thinking, but (laughs) could that be it? Um... Maybe. Alex is just looking for uh, the next line in that in that rap song that they've been working on forever. I mean, I get maybe it's just you know those lined up with with uh, with Alex's particular interests, uh, I guess, more than other things. Um, and and anyway, as well as far as cinema goes, hopefully our Weird House Cinema episodes allow us to uh, allow room for our more obscure cinema references to to grow without uh, you know taking up too much space in some of our core episodes. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. Mm. All right, this next message is about the episode on the speaking sword. This one comes from Renata, and the subject line is the animate sound Lyman. Uh, I had to look that word up, actually, Lyman, L-I-M-E-N. And uh, a Lyman means the the boundary of perceptibility or the threshold of perceptibility for something. So a Lyman is like the point at which something goes from imperceptible to perceptible. You know, it's the lowest possible volume sound you can hear or, or amount of light you can perceive with your eyes or something. So anyway, Renata says, hi, Robin Joe. Uh, oh, and I'm going to skip a bit here, but she begins with a paragraph talking about uh, saying she enjoys listening to the podcast, but also like another listener who wrote in recently enjoys listening to our episodes as a sleep aid, especially Weird House Cinema. No judgment there. Uh, glad you're enjoying it. Um 
but uh, but then she goes on to say, anyway, I got the sleepy vibe from the whispers of the speaking sword until about 35 minutes into the episode when you started to talk about agency, and then I could not fall asleep. I studied cognitive science in college, and this subject has always fascinated me. It reminded me of a thought experiment I sometimes do when I'm bored, and I've been looking for an excuse to write to you two about this. I think of the perceptual boundary between non-agency and agency as a type of Lyman, or perceptual threshold, though I might be stretching the term too much. In the episode, you talked about movement as being key to the human perception giving agency to an object. So here's my thought experiment. What is the Lyman of ascribing sentience or agency to a sound? And then, to take that a step further, what is the Lyman to hear a sound as music? I can no longer remember where I was when I first thought about this, but probably outside and heard a sound that I couldn't immediately tell if it was coming from a human being or if it was just an ambient nature noise. I don't know if you experience this, but I often find myself hearing a weird sound, then waiting until I hear it a few more times to decide if it's from a human, animal, electronic device, or just a noise. I don't have the answer to this question, and I'd love it if you could look into whether it has been studied. I sense that rhythm has something to do with it. Either a sound is too regular and is probably a faucet dripping, for example, or the sound is too irregular, like a branch hitting the side of the house in the wind. Which brings me to music. I listen to ambient music sometimes, again, as a sleep aid, and you might be surprised how sparse and amorphous an ambient track can get before you say to yourself, this is just noise. I know there have been studies on the extent to which animals have musical rhythm. Birds seem to get the closest to dancing and making music-like sounds. Are music and rhythm on the same sentience continuum? Is there a Lyman for being able to detect that a sound was definitely intended as music by a human being versus an animal sound? And where does AI fit in? Thanks for inspiring me to ask these questions. Sorry last time, I I think this is referring to a previous email. Uh, Last time I said that your show doesn't give me chills. I was just being cheeky. I have uh, have a blast listening to you guys, even when it's putting me to sleep. Cheers, Renata. Uh, I think that other email was in response to the episode that Seth and I did about Frisson. Ah. Yeah, but these are really interesting questions, I think. Uh, Like, what are the limits of what we perceive as music? Uh, to some degree, I think that's going to be partially, uh, you know, subjective. Like some people just have, you know, or, or you might say more open-minded about what they're willing to listen to and say, yeah, okay, this is music. But uh, I guess to ask the question a little bit differently, on average, like how much can you deviate from, say, the rhythmic norms of music before most people don't recognize a sound as even something intended to be music, you know? Yeah, I mean, on one hand, I think it's definitely gonna it's gonna vary from person to person. Um, I, I I got to interview uh, Stephen Hill, uh, the uh, creator of the Hearts of Space radio program, years and years ago, and he spoke of people having an ambient DNA, of having sort of an innate inclination to um, to love the more ambient styles of music out there, be it something you know modern and synth based, or something uh, that is more versed in classical music, or some sort of uh, you know cultural tradition, but that some people maybe are more inclined to. Uh, uh, to, to lean into those kind of sounds. Um, and I don't know if that actually is something that matches up with, uh, with anything scientific at all, or if it's just kind of a fun way to think about these things. Uh, but, but I do think it does vary from person to person. I, uh, as someone who does listen to 
a fair amount of um, of ambient music and also some things that are categorized as noise music. I know that I I have a different threshold compared to say my wife. Like there's stuff that that I will enjoy that that she might barely tolerate, and uh, and we're continually working out those borders as we play music in the house. One example of variation on this that I wonder about, I, I can't remember if I mentioned this a minute ago, but uh, I, I wonder about like what are the natural limits on uh, tempo. So if, if you have something that is occurring at regular intervals, uh, people will, you know, can eventually start to pick that out as a kind of rhythm. And maybe if there are certain tonalities associated with it, most people would say, okay, I think this is the sound is intended to be a kind of music. But like how slow can the repetition of, of whatever that sound is get or how fast can it get before you have foreclosed the possibility that anybody listening to it will think that it's supposed to be musical sound? If you imagine a song has, uh, has one beat per minute, or would most people who hear that sound be likely to perceive that as rhythm or perceive it as music spontaneously unless they were primed to in some way? I would guess probably not, but like, what's the limit there? Like how slow can a tempo get? And consequently also how fast can it get before you reach the point where people are not hearing music? They're just hearing kind of a buzz or a whir. As I say, this thunder is rumbling right outside my window. I don't know if Mike's <laughs> picking that up. Uh, it also reminds me of the, um, the fictional drug in the Dune novels, uh, Samuda, mm-hmm. which, uh, the, which of course you, uh, in, in the books where we're, we're we're told that individuals will take Samuda in order to enjoy Samuda music, which is a special kind of music that is just going to sound like just straight garbage unless you are currently using this mysterious narcotic. Oh, is it like a chopped and screwed kind of thing? Uh, I don't know. But uh, it also, I think there was something similar in uh, in uh, a Brass Eye skit, the uh, the British satire series from um, uh, Chris Morris. Mm-hmm. Um in which there were people who would take this fictional drug called cake and they would listen to some sort of music. And of course, it, it, it like Samuda music, it sounds like garbage unless you are on this fictional drug. Hmm. Have you seen the cake episode, Joe? No, I haven't. Oh, it's, it's so good. Uh, they are actually trolled um, actual British politicians into comment- to commenting on the cake epidemic. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah. What like condemning this this epidemic of degenerate culture? Yes, yes, yeah. calling out uh, cake in particular. Mm-hmm. Nice. All right. Well, why don't we do a little bit of Weird House Cinema listener mail while we're at it? Uh, this is a really fun one, and this is uh, where we got the title for this uh, particular episode of Listener Mail. We heard from the home dad abroad, who I, I believe has written in before, uh, because I remember that that moniker. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, they say, hey, Robert and Joe, just a silly little personal connection to John Saxon, the star of your Weird House celebration, Cannibal Apocalypse, that I thought you might enjoy. And at, at this point, the home dad abroad points out that they were employed as a key grip on a, a small budget film many years ago. It was uh, like a, a medieval themed uh, uh, film that starred Mark Singer, Claudia Christian, and John Saxon, who wow. he says was, uh, quote, a quiet, contemplative, and kind man if there ever was one. So, wait, uh, so Mark Singer, was that Beastmaster? That's Beastmaster himself, yes. 
And we confirmed before we started recording this, Claudia Christian was in another movie that we did for Weird House Cinema, which was Arena, the alien boxing movie. Yes, yes. She was the love interest in Arena. Yeah. And she's also... I. I think we didn't realize this when we recorded that episode, but uh, I just recently found out that she was also in one of the movies that, that many years ago was one of my favorite terrible, terrible uh, movies, which was the Steven Seagal film Half Past Dead, starring Seagal <laughs> and Ja Rule and uh, Morris Chestnut. And uh, it's, it is a truly awful film, but I, I remember it, it got one of the best Roger Ebert descriptors of any movie I'd ever seen. In his review, he said that Half Past Dead – is uh is like an alarm that is going off in an unoccupied room. It does its job, it stops, and no one cares. <laughs> All right, well, the, the home data broad continues here. Quote, During the shooting of the climactic sword fight betwixt singers Lancelot and Saxons, I want to say Voldemort, but definitely predated Harry Potter, I was moving along with the actors holding a 4x4 soft bounce board for reflecting sunlight as fill onto the actors' faces to soften the harsh shadows on mostly overtight handheld close-ups. I don't think the camera could even see the swords. <laughs> a good thing at that, as Saxon lost his grip on the unnecessarily heavy and sharp hunk of metal that the art department provided that took the kinetic energy from Singer's Sword's impact to carry it hurtling through the air, finding a point-first purchase in the upper left center of the bounce board I held an inch away from my chest, knocking me backwards and stumbling to the ground. The sword plunged through the inch-thick layer of styrofoam, through the quarter-inch foam core board, jutting out half an inch from my flesh, almost perfectly poised above my heart. Whoa. After the director murmured cut and a couple of people asked if I was okay, I looked up to the smiling silhouette of John Saxon, extending a hand to help me up. Next time I won't miss, he said. <laughs> I have that bounce board to this very day, signed by him in character. Oh, what a story. <laughs> uh, and, then, and then they add, uh, and my son, who was 12 at the time, was unimpressed by the controversy surrounding the unexceptional cannibal holocaust after he watched it. Cheers, the home dad abroad. Okay, well, you heard it here. Every, all 12-year-olds should see no, no, the no. Holocaust. No, no. Uh, I would say absolutely, ab absolutely not. Um, maybe, and I'm not sure if the home dad abroad meant cannibal apocalypse or cannibal holocaust, but I, I, I don't think either film is necessarily for 12-year-olds. <laughs> but that's just me. But I don't know. 12-year-olds are different. I don't know. 12-year-olds are different these days. Everything is different when you've had a brush with a sword through the heart uh, from the hand of, of John Saxon. I think that's got to change you in, in, in every conceivable sense. <laughs> anyway, that's a great story. Yeah. Okay, one last message. This comes from Arwa. Arwa says, Hello, guys. I'm emailing you about your recent Weird House Cinema episode on Deep Blue Sea. My friend and I recently watched this movie together, and I can't seem to get over this scene. In the shot where LL Cool J is hiding in the oven, and it is suddenly turned on. <laughs> Did the shark do that on purpose because it is a super intelligent shark, or was it just a lucky coincidence? Uh, very good question, Arwa. I do not know how the shark turned on the oven. I mean, you know how oven knobs are. They're, yeah. you can occasionally turn them on just with your body if you're like squeezing past somebody in the kitchen or something. So I imagine a giant shark might do that as well. 
I want to hear from people out there. How many have had this perilous problem of doing things in the kitchen while listening to earbuds or headphones and having that dastardly cord grab and snag and and hook over things like knobs and drawer handles? And, ooh, that's dangerous. You know, even if you got a knife handle kind of off the edge of the counter, it it can be perilous. That's a good reason why if you listen to headphones in the kitchen, invest in some wireless ones. Oh wow! I never even thought about that. I mean, it's frustrating enough when your head, your like earbuds, cord or whatever gets caught on something. But if there's if there are knives and fire and boiling water involved, all the yeah. worse. Live lobsters <laughs> getting caught up in your headphone cord, my, flying my co- across the room. My cooking and kitchen experiences in general became became filled with a lot less screaming and 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 swearing uh, once I got some some Bluetooth headphones. <laughs> But anyway, I'm going with the shark did turn on the oven on purpose because uh, that's a smart shark. You know, they can use their they've got they're surprisingly uh, uh, dexterous with the tip of their nose. Yeah, and true. I mean, that's what that's what's up in Deep Blue Sea and the shark. The sharks are super intelligent. They have an agenda. So we have every reason to lean into that explanation. We didn't even touch on this, did we, in our Deep Blue Sea discussion, but that's ultimately the reveal. The the sharks are not just harassing the the humans for revenge. They're escaping from their prison, and they're using the the humans to achieve this, right? Yeah, they want to get out. Yeah, Yeah. they want freedom. Which, again, is weird that we're supposed to be anti-shark in this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, if it was just the sharks versus Stellan Skarsgård and Saffron Burrows, you you might be more sympathetic to the shark side. But, hey, what did LL Cool J ever do to them? He's That's just right. he's just a great cook, and they go in there and they start messing up his kitchen. They try to burn him in an oven. You, they, you can't do that to LL. I know. All he wants to do is create the perfect omelet. He right. didn't ask for any of this. Uh, okay, so Arwa goes on. Another scene that made us burst out laughing was the one where they are explaining the background of the research and why they decided to use, quote, big brain sharks to the Samuel L. Jackson character. And he replies by saying, using sharks to harvest more protein, like it was a logical expected course of action. This is especially funny to us because we are both researchers in the biology field and (laughs) often have to produce proteins for lab experiments. However, the commonly used practice involves using programmed bacteria or yeast to produce the proteins, as they can produce very large amounts of the desired protein fast and at very low costs, especially compared to a research facility in the middle of the sea that houses only three sharks. Very astute. I, I agree that the, the movie, they, it would have been harder to make this movie if they had gone with bacteria or yeast instead of sharks. But I don't know, maybe you could have done it. Smart yeast. <laughs> I mean, I guess if you wanted to make a blob film, that's one way yeah. to go about it, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Huh. Anyway, Arwa says, thank you so much for the great podcast. Uh, it has really helped me stay enlightened during those long, tedious lab experiments. Best, Arwa. Well, thank you so much. All right. Well, that's that's what we have for you here today. Uh, that is the mailbag for this installment of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, Listener Mail. But we'll be back because there's more stuff we didn't read. There's more stuff we're still reading and processing. And, of course, we ask that you keep it coming. If you have thoughts on episodes that are coming out now, thoughts on past episodes, rerun ep- uh, vault episodes, Weird House Cinema episodes, or thoughts about what future episodes of the show could be, 
let us know. We would love to hear from you. In the meantime, you can check out Stuff to Blow Your Mind Listener Mail on Mondays, core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind on Tuesday and Thursday. On Wednesday, we do The Artifact. And on Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to just look at a weird or interesting film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.